The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Yeah, if you're here, uh, last week we began this new sermon series. We're calling it Greater, Truer, Better. We began uh, uh, a teaching sermon series through the New Testament epistle of Hebrews. If you brought a Bible this morning, I'd encourage you to open up to chapter 1. We're going to wrap up chapter 1 today in our teaching. If you, if you came last week, you, you would have heard us sort of do an introduction of the book and then really take an emphasis on the first three verses of the, of the book. We, in those three verses, we saw three things. And we saw that, that God speaks a final and definitive word through His Son, Jesus. The, the book of Hebrews begins by jumping into the deep end. The author begins by saying, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And then, and then we saw uh, in verses 2 and 3 that the, Jesus is the fully divine Son of God. There's all this language about what Jesus has done in, in being fully God. He is creator. He, he is the heir of all things. He, he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And in the last bit of verse 3 last week, we saw where Jesus finished the work of purification. He made purification for sins, and, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And as we journey through this book, we've asked the church to pray in three ways. Uh, we as elders and as staff, and we've asked the congregation to pray in these three ways, that, that as we behold Jesus as presented to us in the letter uh, of Hebrews, that we would, uh, our faith would grow deeper in Jesus. Uh, that that our, our faithfulness would grow deeper, that we would learn to live out our faith in real and tangible ways, and that our, and our love for Christ would be very, very honest and very real. And it will be an outflow as we, as we journey through this book together. Today we're going to wrap up this, this chapter. And in the first three verses, the, the, the jumping into the deep end, the, the author's intention was pretty clear. He just wanted to hold up Jesus. And then here in verses 4 through 14, the, the letter takes this bizarre little turn. It's an unexpected, unusual, intriguing turn as the author begins to talk about angels and he quotes uh, seven or eight times Old Testament passages from Psalm and, and from Second Samuel and from Deuteronomy and from Isaiah. So let's read through the chapter, and then we will spend the rest of our time kind of unpacking what it is and why it is the author has chosen to take this unexpected turn. Let's begin in verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets— but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse 5. For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil and gladness beyond your companions. Verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, 
and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I know that's a bit of a clunky chapter with all the quotations. Trying to understand context is a challenge. Six times in this chapter, the word angels are mentioned, but the emphasis of this chapter is not on angels. The author is speaking about angels as a way to sort of prop up the sun, to elevate the sun. The point of the chapter is the same as the first three verses, to uphold Jesus, that we might behold Jesus. And yet there is this bizarre fixation on angels. Why is the author talking about angels so much? It's evident that something has happened that made this conversation necessary to the letter writer. It reminds me of when I'm in like a, a, a store, a department store, and, I, and I'm getting ready to leave, and above the door in bold letters, it always says, these doors must remain open during business hours. Have you ever seen that? You're like, what? Like, of course these doors must remain open during business hours. But when you see that, you recognize, okay, there's a story behind that. There's a reason why that had to be put up above the doors. Either someone locked people in when they wanted to get out, or they locked people out when they needed to get in and went bankrupt, and someone made the decision that that needed to be legislated, that this, there, there's, there's a story behind the message. And similarly, as readers, when we come to this discussion and it turns to angels in the first chapter, it ought to make us as readers pause. Because the author is clarifying a problem that we didn't know existed, but he's taking the time to do so. He begins the transition in verse 4. The Son, he says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And this is kind of the thesis that he unpacks for the next ten verses. The Son is superior to and bears a name more excellent than angels. And then he pulls from a, a plethora of Old Testament passages to support his argument. My sermon title today is simply this, The Son, Superior and more excellent than angels. And what I will unpack for the next few minutes is simply this. Everything about Christ is vastly superior to angels. The Bible is very clear. Angels are creature. He is creator. And here's, here's my sermon in four words. Angels serve, the sun reigns. Angels serve, Jesus reigns. That's what we are being taught today in this passage. Father, would you just be with us as we unpack this text? God, would you speak to us today as we spend a few moments here in the first chapter of Hebrews? God, this is, this is unique, and God, I'm the first one to con confess. It's, it's a bit confusing even to understand, you know, what it is uh, that you are trying to say through these words. But God, we believe that these are your words. God, we, we affirm that, that you've inspired these words. They, 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 they come with authority. They've been inspired, and in, in, in with reverence, we open up this word. We sit under the authority of this word. So God, would you move uh, in and through your spirit this morning to open up our eyes and, and soften our hearts to, to bring about a, a, a worshipful response to the truths contained in this text? And, and God, would you, would you cause us to, to, to walk out of this room today having encountered you in a real way, having been equipped to walk with you in, in a greater level of obedience— so have your way with us, Lord. Bring conviction where that needs to happen and clarity where that needs to happen and, and confession where that needs to happen. We ultimately just, we give this time to you for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So let's pretend for a minute that after church, you go to a local restaurant, and it's just the worst experience you've ever had. It's horrible. Uh, the, the service is awful. The, the ambience is awful. The food is awful. And just everything about the experience is just like nine times worse than you've ever experienced. And you're just frustrated, and you're angry. And on top of that, the server is just rude and disrespectful and, and uh, just condescending. And you're sitting there, and I want you to finish this statement because you might be tempted to say to this server at some point when your frustration meets its peak, you might be tempted to say, I'd like to speak with your manager. <laughs> Please, don't be that guy. But, <laughs> just leave. But uh, why? why? Why do you want to speak with the manager? Well, because the manager has authority, right? The server operates at the behest of the manager. The server is under the authority of the manager of the restaurant. Similarly, if you were to, if you were to work in construction, if you were to walk into a job site as an, as an inspector or, or even as a customer, and you were to see just disarray and people everywhere, no order, and you're just like, what in the world is going on? You'd maybe say, like, who's in charge here? Like, who's calling the shots? This is just a mess. Why would you say that? Because you recognize that there's value in going to the authority. I can remember when I was a kid that we would have our old landline. Remember the long, stretchy cord? We had a cord that was like 107 feet long, and you could go in the bathroom and shut the door and talk to your girlfriend, and your mom would get on the other line and yell at you. But I can remember we'd get these, these random phone calls, and it would be like some cold call sales deal. And the person on the other line would say, we'd like to speak with the head of the household. Did you guys ever get those calls? I'd be like, I'm the head of the household. You're a child. You're a child. I'd hang up, you know, but— but they recognized that there is authority in the household, and they wanted to go to the authority. Uh, that's kind of the idea behind our text today. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, we were getting ready to fly to Uganda. Aaron's going to kill me when I tell this story. Sorry, Aaron. We were getting ready to fly to Uganda, and we had done all our work, got all of our stuff, our visas, everything, our yellow fever vaccinations, everything we needed, had our COVID tests, everything. Me and him and Fred show up at the airport here in Medford, and we're, I mean, and everybody's waiting for us. We've been anticipating this trip for two years, and we're going through the checkout line at the Medford airport, and they ask us to see our vaccination, uh, uh, that we had a, a free COVID test, that we were, that we tested COVID free. And we're like, we took the, we took the test yesterday, but it can only be, it can't, it can't be more than three days old in order for us to enter the country of, of Uganda. So we don't actually have the results. They're going to email them to us when we're in the air so we can show them to customs in Uganda. And the guy's like, sorry, no, no test that shows you're COVID free and you can't, you can't get on the plane. We're like, we just spent like $5,000 on plane tickets. We've been planning on this for two years as a church. Like, bro, please, like we've done everything we're supposed to do. We just haven't got the emails, the results emailed to us yet. That's going to be like another 24 hours. He's like, man, no, no test, no, no flight. You can't even get on the plane. And Aaron said, is there a manager I could speak to here maybe? <laughs> Aaron understood uh, th there's this thing of authority. That's the heart behind our text. The basic idea behind what the author is saying today in this first chapter is that, that Jesus has ultimate authority. He's the manager. He's the person in charge. He's the supervisor. He's whomever. He is, he is, there's none other, none bigger, none greater. In his being and in his work, the son is vastly superior. I wrote in my notes, the son is preeminent in who he is and what he does. There is none above Jesus. There's no kings or presidents, no gods, no gurus, especially angels. He is and has ultimate authority. And the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who are really struggling for, for a variety of reasons. They're, they're enduring seasons of tremendous difficulty. They're in a dogfight with personal sin that they can't seem to get an upper hand on. The sin seems to be winning. They're confused theologically. 
And as a result, they were turning away from Jesus and they're turning back to to angels. They're turning away from the gospel and turning to to, to old practices. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a closer look. We're going to try to unpack what's happening here. But what we're going to say again and again, I've already said it to you. I'm going to say it to you multiple times. Everything about Christ is vastly superior to the angels. They are creature. He is creator. Angels serve. Jesus reigns. So as I said last week, we, we don't know a ton about the book. We don't, of Hebrews, the author and God has chosen not to reveal to us a ton about this book. We don't know who the author is. We're not meant to know who the author is. Uh, we, there's some speculation about who wrote, the, who wrote, and we know the person was a contemporary of Timothy and, and so on and so forth, but we simply just don't know who the author of Hebrew is. The second thing we don't know is we don't necessarily know exactly who the original audience was. Now, we re, as we read the text, we recognize these were people who understood the Old Testament. Likely they were Hellenistic Jews, Jews who lived within a Greek-speaking Roman culture because the quotes of the Old Testament are in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, but ultimately we don't exactly know who the original audience was, and, and we don't even know the exact context or the occasion of what led to the writing of this letter. God has, has seen fit for us to not know those things. But as we study the letter, we learn some things about who he was writing to and, and what is the, the intended purpose behind the writing. This was written to a group of Christians who were in danger of giving up. Can you identify with that? There was difficulty in their life and persecution, and it was backbreaking. They're dealing with some serious questions about how their new Christianity relates to their previous religious practice. They're confused. And again, they're dealing with just the discouraging reality of habitual sin that they cannot seem to overcome. And all of this was causing them to ask very big questions. They they were asking, is the death of Christ sufficient for these ongoing challenges? We said last week that Hebrews was written for one reason, and we'll say it in future weeks. The one reason why this book was written was to encourage people, to urge people to not give up. By by reminding the the recipients of this, both them then and us today, the recipients of this book, of of the all-important truth of the absolute perfection and sufficiency of Christ. That's why this whole first chapter is constantly propping up Jesus. When we understand this truth and when we embrace the reality of the, of the perfection and the sufficiency of Christ, everything else falls in place. Everything we need to be faithful falls in place when we have Jesus in his proper position. We, we, we continue to walk as God desires for us to walk. We, we persevere through all circumstances. We keep our faith anchored to the truth as revealed, to, as revealed in Christ. And so as we turn back to the first three verses, we see this happening, this, this propping up, and, and, and we see it sort of in a new light here in the last 11 verses. Why, why was this audience so intrigued about angels? Well, we know some things about, about Judaism in that time. We know that within the, the Jewish culture that there was an intense focus on angels at this time. I read this week that many people in Israel looked to angels as messengers of God, as the ones who, who would protect and rescue Israel. There was a belief that angels would be in the center of God's vindicating work from oppression. We also know that there was a bit of, uh, of an obsession in this time among Jews concerning personalized angels, what we might call guardian angels. There's some, unbibl- there's some non-biblical writings that have revealed this to us. And perhaps most significantly, and what we get into in chapter 2, is, is that in Judaism, there was this belief that the law had been revealed to Moses through angels. And the author gets into that in chapter 2, verse 2. 
Paul speaks about that in Galatians. Stephen, when he's being stoned in, in Acts 7, the, the, his accusers are Jews and they're going to throw rocks at him until he's dead. And Stephen says back to his executioners in Acts 7, 53, you would have received the law that was given through the angels but have not obeyed it. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. So the belief was that angels delivered the old covenant law. So that's why angels were being elevated. And the author is there to say, don't go back to Old Covenant. Jesus has brought something new. Everything about Christ is vastly superior to the angels. The angels are, are creatures. He is creator. Angels serve. Jesus reigns. And so as we look at our text, I, I, I want to divide it up into two basic camps. Verses 1 through 7 and verses 8 through, through 13. And then 14 will be attached to the first part. But, but verses 1 through 7, we see the role of angels— and that's the, I would encourage you to write that down if you're a note taker. We see the role of angels, and then we're going to see the rule of the sun once we get down to, to verse 8. But here, uh, beginning in verse 4, we see the role of angels. Now, we sent out an email earlier this week to the people on our email list, and we're trying something new. We're trying through this, through this series of Hebrews to, to maybe provide some meaningful fodder for engagement with the text before it's preached. I had a, I had a family maybe three or four weeks ago that they had, they're in small group leader training and they had had a chance to sit down with Jeremy and Jeremy had shared with them some small group questions about some upcoming teachings that we were going to have at Heritage and they had a chance as a husband and wife to, to, to interact with the, the small group questions to spend some time in the text before they came and sat under it preached on a Sunday. So after the service, they found me, and they're like, dude, that was awesome. Like, we were prepared to receive the word. We sat, we studied it a bit before Sunday. We, we had some questions that caused us to think about it. And then when you taught it, it just made it come alive that much more. Could you maybe provide something like that for our church? And I was like, yeah, I think we can do that. So we've made the decision in, in the Hebrew series, every two weeks we send out our church email, that we're going to try to provide a couple of questions for you to meaningfully engage with the text before it's preached. One of the questions I asked you to consider this week before today's sermon was what does the Bible reveal concerning the, the nature and role of angels? And so what, what do angels do? What do we know if we look biblically at angels, the nature and the role of angels? Now, there's a ton. I mean, there's eons and catalogs written about this. So we can't, we can't spend massive amounts of time settling into this, but I want to just do like a 30,000-foot flyover and just try to give a, a, a clear 30,000-foot view of, of the role and the nature of angels, just some things we know for sure biblically, right? So number one, we know that angels serve the people God saves. We see that in verse 14 of our passage today. One purpose of the angels is to minister to the elect of God. We see that in verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? The author writes at the end of the chapter. The second thing we know about angels is they deliver messages. The word angel literally means messenger. Even, like, if you just look at Gabriel. Gabriel, we see him show up in both the Old and the New Testament. In the book of Daniel, Gabriel shows up in Daniel 8, and he interprets a vision for Daniel. And then in the New Testament, Gabriel, the angel, shows up, and he, and he uh, shows up and gives a message to Zechariah concerning the birth of his son, John the Baptist. Gabriel shows up to Mary and, and helps her understand she's going to be delivering the Messiah. Even in the Old Testament, we go back to Genesis, we see angels showing up in human form, and they are warning Lot of God's impending judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we see that angels deliver messages at the behest of God. The third thing we see is we see they wage spiritual battle. 
We see them fighting forces of spiritual darkness who try to thwart God's plans. We see this throughout the scriptures. Fourthly, they worship God. Angels worship God. Angels are constantly surrounding the throne of God, worshiping and shouting his praises. Verse 6 of our passage today tells us that to let all God's angels worship him. I read this week, uh, and I was reminded that there are unfallen angels who have continually worshiped Jesus. Continually worshiped. Listen to what one commentator writes. There are creatures who did not sin, who did not fall. These are those angels who, unlike Satan, stayed loyal to their creator. This is a significant fact. It means that the living God has never ceased to be worshipped since creation began. Isn't that cool? Angels serve. They exist to do the will of the creator. They, they aid in the transmission of God's word. They execute judgment. There's all these things we know about angels. And, and, and we're also cautioned that, that additionally, angels are not to be worshipped. And angels are not to be the object of prayer. When we see angels interacting with humans in the scriptures, we see a very strong reaction. Angels are incredibly powerful beings, powerful with drawn flaming swords, majestic, accompanied with blinding light. Don't let these, um, these contemporary images of angels fool you. Angels aren't some chubby infant with peachy cheeks, a pathetic little bow and arrow puny wings, and messy hair. No, our angels are not precious doll, uh, precious moments dolls. Angels are beings that are powerful and impressive. Think of Luke 2, the angels that manifested and made themselves known to the sheep or the shepherds the night that Jesus was born. What was the first words out of their mouth? Fear not. Because when you encounter an angel, it is a terrifying and fearful thing. Grown men, brave men, tremble and attempt to flee. And in some cases, there's this inclination even to worship angels when they show up. So I think we need to understand angels a little bit more broadly before we just move on in the passage. I think we just need to recognize the grandeur, the majesty, the, the, the power, the significance of angels. Don't turn there, but there's a really amazing story in 2 Kings. Well, you can turn there if you want to, but you don't have to. 2 Kings chapter 6. It's a pretty well-known story in, in, in 2 Kings. There was this prophet of God named Elisha, and there was this king in Syria who was waging war against Israel. And every time he would make a plan to invade or to, to uh, engage in some sort of offensive, the, Israel's armies would thwart the Syrian king's attack. And he became convinced that there was a traitor in his midst, so he gathered like his people. He's like, there's a traitor because every time I do something, Israel knows about it. But somehow these men who he gathered knew that, no, 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 there's a man of God, a prophet of God named Elisha. And God is giving him understanding of what your plans are. Even the plans you make in your bedroom, and Elisha is telling the king of Israel. And so the king of Syria is like, well, we've got to put a stop to this. We've got to seize him. He found out he was in the city called Dothan. And so all these chariots and horses from the king of Syria go to seize Elisha. Now, Elisha has a servant boy. Uh, this boy is uh, uh, like, a, like a servant to the prophet. And, and he hears what's happening, and he's terrified. And in 2 Kings, beginning in chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, we read that one night the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses, and he surrounded the city of Dothan. And when the servant of the man, God, the man of God, got up early the next morning, when Elisha's servant boy, when he got up, he went outside, and, and there were troops and horses and chariots everywhere. And understandably so, he was terrified. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Verse 16, Elisha says to his servant, don't. 
be afraid. For there are more on our side than on theirs. And then Elisha prayed. He said, Lord, open the eyes of my servant and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. God allowed the veil to be peeled back, and this servant boy got to see and behold God's armies who had come to the defense of his man. Horses and chariots of fire all around the hillside. What a a fearful and beautiful and amazing sight. Angels that had been sent at the behest of God to, to protect his man. I read this week that who were riding the horses and chariots? Angels. Angels protect and deliver the believer, the saint, from temporal danger. Angels rescued Lot and his family, snatching them from Sodom. Angels go down into the den with Daniel and stop the the lion's mouths. What a marvelous and comforting truth to know that angels minister to us. Their destiny is to continue to minister to us throughout eternity, but Jesus' destiny is to reign. He is therefore immeasurably superior to the angels. Everything about Christ is vastly superior to angels. They are creature. He is creator. Angels serve. Jesus reigns. But you know what? Encounters with angels aren't limited to what's written in Scripture. There's some incredible stories throughout church history of the way angels have shown up. I'm going to share a couple with you because I think it's important. I heard someone else share these in a teaching, and it was, it was, it was significant for me. So I want to share a couple stories with you that, we've, that we know from outside of Scripture about angels. Listen to this story. There was a missionary named John Patton. He was a Scottish missionary in the late 1800s. He went down to a chain of islands in the South Pacific that we now know as Vanuatu. He went there, him and his wife Margaret went there to evangelize uh, these tribal people that were caught up in the occult. They were, they were involved in demonic worship and witchcraft and, yes, cannibalism. I read this week that hearing of Patton's remarkable ministry among cannibals, an Australian newspaper reported the following testimony of supernatural angelic intervention. One night, savage warriors surrounded Patton's mission headquarters intent on burning them out, slaying them, and eating them. John Patton and his wife Margaret turned to the Lord in prayer, leaning on his great promises of Psalm 91 for angelic assistance. They claimed the divine protection of the blood of Jesus and prayed in the spirit throughout that terror-filled night. And the next morning, when the first rays of sunlight appeared, the Patents saw their attackers had fled, and with grateful hearts, they praised the Lord for his miraculous hand of deliverance. Almost a year later, the chief of the tribe came to faith in Christ. He surrendered to Christ. He received salvation. Patton, remembering what had happened on that night, asked the chief what kept his warriors from killing him and his wife. The chief surprised Patton when he gave him this answer. He said, who were all those men that you had there with you at your house? The missionary replied, there were no men with us, only my wife and I, and we were praying inside. The chief insisted that he and his tribe had seen hundreds of big men standing guard outside the headquarters that night, all dressed in white shining garments with drawn swords in their hands. These armed security guards encircled the mission station so that the savages were afraid to attack. Only then did Patton realize that God had dispatched an army of angels to protect him and his wife. The chief agreed that there could be no other explanation. Isn't that incredible? One more story. It's a story of Rift Rift Valley Academy in Kenya in 1956. Very well-known story. 
On this one particular night in 1956, there was a group of Mau Mau rebels. And they had killed 300 people in a town east of the Rift Valley Academy, just three miles. And then they had turned their attention to Rift Valley Academy. They were hell-bent on killing the missionary children and the teachers to fulfill their vows to eat the brains of white men who they considered their oppressors. Ward got out about this plan, but it was too late to evacuate the school or get outside protection, so desperate phone calls were made, and people around the world were called upon to pray for God's intervention with all these children and their teachers trapped inside. The night went on with teachers and children huddled at Rift Valley Academy praying and fully expecting to be attacked and likely killed at any moment. But nothing happened. The warriors never made it to the school and no one was harmed. No one knew the rest of the story until sometime later when the Mau Mau warrior who was in jail was put on trial. At his trial, the leader of the Mau Maus who led the attack, he was asked, on this particular night, did you intend to kill the inhabitants of the missionary school? His answer, yes. Why didn't you? His answer, well, we were on our way to attack and kill them. But as we came closer, suddenly between us and the school, there were many men dressed in white, holding flaming swords. He said, he and his warriors were terrified. They fled down the hill, never to return. Now God, in his grace, allowed human eyes to see what he was doing in those moments. But I imagine those nights. I imagine those moments of terror. I imagine those angels being dispatched with their flaming swords, how majestic and powerful and impressive all those angels are. But as impressive as they are, to which of them did God ever say, you are my son? As majestic and powerful and awe-inspiring as the angels are, to which of them did God ever say, your throne is forever? Or sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies a footstool under my feet. See, the author does this so that we will see the majestic and powerful angels and then we'll see how much more powerful and majestic is the Son. The author thought the most majestic and, uh, and impressive and most powerful thing he could think of, and he did this to show us how much more powerful and majestic and impressive is Jesus. Everything about Christ is vastly superior to angels. They are creature. He is creator. Angels serve. Jesus reigns. Three quick things I want you to see in the text. If you're the kind of person that likes to mark up the scriptures and draw some conclusions. Here's why I'd encourage you to do that. We're going to go through this very quickly. As impressive and as awe-inspiring as they are, the angels are not God's Son. That's the first thing I want you to see. Underline verse 5, the beginning part, for to which of the Gospels did God ever say? This is a rhetorical question. God never said to an angel, you are my son. God never said to an angel, I have become your father. God never said of an angel, I will be to him a father. God never said of an angel, I will be a son to him, or he will be a son to me. The conclusion here is that angels are not God's son. There's only one son, and his name is Jesus. The second thing we see, it's a quoting of Deuteronomy 32. We see that angels are to worship the son. The author here, quoting Deuteronomy, says that let all the angels worship him. So these impressive and majestic and powerful created beings are on their face before a holy God. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 kind of gives us this picture. As God gives John revelation, we read that John looks up and he says, I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, 
numbering in myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So the angels are created beings who are to worship the Son. Lastly, in quoting the 104th Psalm, we see that angels are created to serve the Son. And I'd even add to serve the saints. Angels are created to serve the Son and serve the saints. Look at the word makes in verse, in verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16. Of Jesus, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then we see here in verse 14, this last verse of the chapter, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They've been created by God to serve. Ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Not only do they serve the Son, but they serve those of us who inherit salvation. Listen to what this theologian says. He says, Jesus' destiny is to reign. The angel's destiny is to serve forever those who are heirs of salvation. What a wonderful, awesome prospect for Christians. In addition to being forever in God's presence, our destiny is to be served by angels forever. And angels have an important role. They're ministering servants sent out by God. I, I was mindful this week of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when his accusers and, and those who arrested him showed up. Do you remember what he said? In Matthew 26, he says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? If Jesus had so chosen, he could have said the word and 70,000 angels would have come down with flaming swords and flaming chariots to defend him, but he chose not to. They are servants and messengers. In fact, at the very end of Hebrews, there's this unique thing that happens in chapter 2, or verse 2 on chapter 13. The author says, Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. Isn't that an interesting thought? So, when it comes to angels, the role of angels, we see that they're not God's Son, they worship the Son, and they're created to serve the Son. Everything about Christ is superior to angels. They are creature, He is creator. They serve, He reigns. And that takes us to the second part of the text. We see the rule of the Son in verse 8 through 13. The rule of the Son. So he's already made the divinity of Christ clear. We looked at that last week in the first three verses. If you just read through the first three verses of, of the book of Hebrews, we, we learn that Jesus is the heir of all things. We learn that he created all things. We learn that he is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. We learn that Jesus made purification for sins, and then he sits at the right hand of God. So he's, he's fully God. And then he continues to unpack this reality by looking at these Old Testament passages. Look at verse 8. We see that the Son is fully God. In verse, the first part of verse 8, this is a quoting of, of Psalm 45 here. But here's what we read. The, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice who's calling whom God in this passage. Of the Son, he says... 
Your throne, O God, is forever. Who is he? It's God the Father. So God the Father says to God the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God the Father calls God the Son God. What an incredible thought. Again, we talked about this last week. We begin to bump up into the mystery of the Godhead when we get into these passages, but it's an incredible reality. And in multiple ways, the author has made clear in chapter 1 that the Son is fully God. As we continue in verse 45, we see that the Son is righteous king. You see, the Son is righteous king. Look at the language in verses 8 and 9 in the quoting of the 45th Psalm here. We see all this language of king and kingdom. We see throne and scepter and kingdom. We see that he's anointed. And we see righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. I'm imagining that the original audience was probably very familiar with kingdoms and monarchies, but probably not righteous kingdoms. They were used to King Herod, and they were used to Caesar and, and wicked, corrupt kings that, that, that hurt and oppressed their people. But this kingdom, the kingdom of King Jesus, is a righteous kingdom. And he's been anointed by the Father. Only Jesus has a throne. Angels don't have thrones. They surround the throne. They worship the one on the throne. The king alone holds the scepter. And then we look at verses 10 and 12. This is a quoting of Psalm 102. And we see here that the Son is immutable, creator. We see the Son here is immutable creator. The word immutable simply means forever unchanging. And this language is thick as they're quoting the 102nd Psalm. Look at the, the, the creator language. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And then we read about how all creation is unwinding, but then we read in verse 12, but you are the same. Your years have no end. There's a beginning and an end to things created, but he is immutable. And then lastly, we see that the Son is conquering victor. This is the first of four times this psalm is quoted in, in Hebrew, Psalm 110, verse 1. We see the Son is conquering victor. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet? Only the victor sits on the throne. And only the victor puts his enemies as a footstool under his feet. The Son is conquering victor. He sat down, having become superior to the angels. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels, we read. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and he humbled himself. He made himself a man a little lower than the angels, and he died in our place, making purification for our sins. But now Jesus has been exalted back to the right hand of the Father. So here's what the text is teaching us. We see the rule of the Son. He is fully God. He's righteous King. He's immutable Creator, and he's victorious Conqueror. And so as we just step back a little bit, it's a 14 verses. It's, it's, a, it's a deep end of the pool. There's so much here in this chapter. What have we learned? Just in the 11 verses we've taught today, what have we learned? Well, we've learned that angels are not God's son. They, they worship the son. They serve the son. We've learned that angels are not fully God. They're not righteous king. They're not immutable creator. They are not conquering vicar. That only belongs to Jesus. In this chapter, Jesus is called Son, Lord, and God. In verse 4, it says he has inherited the name that is more excellent than their name. What name has he inherited? Son, Lord, and God. No angel is called Son. No angel is called Lord. No angel is called God. Only Jesus has that. And as God, the Son creates, sustains, governs, redeems, and purges sin. As God, the Son has divine worth. He is the one to be worshipped by angels and all other creatures in the universe. As God, the Son... He has divine attributes. We read of his omniscience here, the fact that he's all-knowing. 
We read of his omnipresence, the fact that he is all present. We read of his immutability, the fact that he is unchanging. We read of his eternality, the fact that he is eternally existent. Everything about Christ, everything about Christ is vastly superior to everyone and everything else. He is preeminent. Creation serves, Jesus reigns. Why was the author of Hebrews all in? Why the deep end of the pool? Why the the seven or eight quotes from the Old Testament? Why all this language about the divinity of Jesus? Why does this author labor so hard to give us this detailed explanation of all this? Why is it so important for this audience to understand all of this? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, Anytime you see that word, therefore, we have to look at everything that comes before it. In light of everything we've learned over 14 verses, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. I was in my my men's group on Thursday, and one of the guys, I think it might have been Mike Dietz, he's like, we must pay much closer attention, like this double emphasis on the significance of our, our paying attention to the things we've heard. What have we heard? Everything I just taught that elevates Christ and puts everything else in its position underneath his authority. You see, these, 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 these people, the recipients of this, this letter, they weren't turning to false gods and demonic activity. They were turning to angels. They were making good things, ultimate things. They weren't turning to Satan But their eyes weren't on Jesus. Their eyes had drifted from him. And when our eyes drift off Jesus, our lives spiritually begin to drift. We might even be fixing our eyes on good things, but we can't make good things ultimate things. And that's what they were doing. We can do the same thing. We too can make good things ultimate things. We must pay pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. To turn away from Jesus, the message, and to look instead at angels, the messenger, is a slippery slope. I'm mindful of Mormonism that came through the revelation of an angel called Moroni, and now millions are led astray in a false cult. I'm mindful of Islam, where the angel Jibril was the one who revealed the Quran to the prophet Muhammad, and now millions, even billions of people are led astray by a false religion. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, no wonder, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We must pay much closer attention to Jesus. Everything about Christ is vastly superior to angels. Angels are creatures. He is creator. Angels serve. Jesus reigns. Now, now, we talked about this as a staff, right? And, And I'm not sure how prevalent within Protestant evangelicalism within Heritage Christian Fellowship. I'm not for how, sure how prevalent we might be tempted here in this room to turn to angels. Though I don't want to discount that. How, how, how we might be tempted to look to messengers and, 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 and miss the message, Jesus himself. I've certainly seen Christians over the years led away by dangerous spiritualism. In fact, I have a friend on, on Facebook right now. It's crazy. I watched this woman worship in my church and proclaim Christ, and now I'm watching her engage in all sorts of the occult and spiritual practices that are anti-gospel. It's heartbreaking. So Christians aren't immune. Those of us in this room aren't immune to be led away by, by angels or that which purports to be an angel. Just walk through the stores in downtown Ashland and just pay attention to the books you see on the shelves of almost every store. They're filled with the occult. It's crazy. Blew my mind when I moved here don't see that in the Midwest. (laughs) You see it on the West Coast. 
But maybe for us here, my guess is, is we, as we chatted about this as a staff and as I chatted about this with my friends, is maybe we're not as tempted. I don't want to discount those of us that might be tempted by a spiritualism or by, by a message of an angel that claims, claims to be an angel. That certainly can happen. So if, if, if you're struggling, if you're, if you're being tempted by something that's not God, if you're, if you're turning away from Jesus to, to other spiritual voices, please let's have a conversation. But my guess is for most of us in this room, we're tempted by messengers human messengers, which isn't a departure from the text that much. I remember the first church I worked at, I was a kid, I was excited to be paid in ministry, and I I got a job at a church in central Wisconsin, and the lead pastor was this super charismatic dude. And he was intelligent and smart and funny and, and charismatic, and I was enamored by him. And, and I kind of wanted him to be a spiritual father. I, didn't, I wasn't raised with a real strong, like, dominant spiritual influence in my family. And as I started working at this church, I really sort of projected onto this guy that he was going to be the, the, the spiritual father who was going to put his arm around me, and I was going to be mentored underneath him and discipled underneath him. And, and as I began to walk over the course of years, certain things began to happen. Well, for one, for the first two or three years, I, everything he told me, I took as gospel. He was a messenger, but I, everything he said, like, it was gospel. And then I remember sitting in a staff meeting one time as he was losing his temper at one of our other staff members, and he said something, I can't remember exactly what it was, but he said something to the effect of, you are on staff at this church to carry out my vision for the ministry. You answer to me. And I was like, I don't think that's right. I think I work for Jesus, and I think that's wrong. And, I be- and then I remember we did this 40 days church-wide campaign, and there was a very popular Christian author at the time who had a very, 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 very popular book, and our church had, had decided to read the book. I'm not throwing the book under the, under, the, under the bus, but I remember he stood up, and he held this book written by a human author, and he said, this is the most important book you'll ever read. And I'm like, your Bible is right there! Like, really? And I remember thinking, I, I, I think I have been following a human messenger. Yeah, and I think he's actually led me astray. I think we're tempted to do that in this room. I think if you've been a part of a church that had a, had a charismatic, gifted, godly leader, it's very tempting to put yourself under that visionary leader and let your, your obedience be pointed to the messenger and not just see him as a beautiful, God-given vessel that takes you to the message himself. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying we have a temptation to want to follow human leaders to a fault. It's not bad to emulate and see godly men and women and say, man, that's an, Paul, there's tons of language about the Apostle Paul saying, follow me as I follow Jesus. We need examples. I'm not saying we don't need examples. What I'm saying is, and maybe you can understand it, I'm having a hard time putting words to this, but I have seen so often Christians putting themselves under human leaders as if that person is God. Reading their books as if those books are of God. I sat in my office last week. I'm just going to confess to you a sin. I've been reading through the, the minor prophets, which are so hard to read through in, in your devotional life. I've been in Zechariah for like three weeks. I can't get through it. And I'm sitting in my office. I'm also reading through J.I. Packer's Knowing God, which is an incredible book. He's an incredible messenger of God, a faithful man. And I've got Zechariah on my desk, and I've got Knowing God on my desk, and I know that this is the living word of God. It's, author- it's, a, it's got authority in my life. It's inerrant. It's God's living words. And I know this book is really interesting, and I made the decision to say, I'll read Zechariah tomorrow. I'm going to read this human author for my devotions instead. I'm not saying that's a horrible offense to God, but it was a little compromise that I made. I think we do that. 
Maybe there's some of you, and I know there's some of you in here, because I've had conversations with you, who actually bear wounds that resulted from you elevating a human being to, the, to a, 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 a level in your life that they never should have had, a spiritual leader. I know that. And I, though I don't know it's purely speculation to me, we were chatting as a staff this week, and I wonder how, how would Martin Luther feel about millions of people calling themselves Lutherans and not Christians? I wonder how John Calvin would feel about millions of people calling themselves Calvinists and not Christians. I wonder how John Wesley would feel about millions of people calling themselves Wesleyans and not Christians. Maybe they'd be fine with it, I don't know. And I'm not saying those, men, those faithful men of God, who he used. Good men, good servants, good messengers, but not the message himself. The value of the messenger is the extent with which we elevate or they elevate the message. Serve as a conduit with which people can encounter the message Jesus himself. So many of us have been caught up. We've elevated pastors or authors or gurus to our demise. Man, I, I know that there's this tendency in the church when people say, hey, where do you go to church? To say, oh, I go to so-and-so's church. You, na- you name the senior pastor. Or I go to so-and-so's church. And again, it's innocent. I get it. But can I just beg of you? Can I beg of you to never say you go to Paul Stevens's church? Please never, ever, ever say that. Ever. People ask you where you go to church. Say, well, I'm a part of the Church of Christ. I worship at Heritage Christian Fellowship. Our church is served by some awesome men and women. Please say that. Christ is the message. Faithful messengers point people to him and get out of the way. Here's how Paul puts it in Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. He says, him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Oh God, may that be true of us. Everything about Christ is vastly superior to human preachers, authors, and gurus. People are creatures. Jesus is creator. People serve. Jesus reigns. Amen? So, before I close, I think we need to take stock of the first chapter, just for one moment. Because there's something incredible the author has laid out for us here in this first chapter. He's answered two huge questions. Who is Jesus and what has he done? And these are the questions that the world, the seeking world, the unbelieving world needs to know. This is what we need to renew our faith every day. Who is Jesus and what has he done? Well, Jesus is God the Son. In this chapter, we see God the Father and God the Son. The writer is making clear that Jesus Christ is God the Son. And as we journey through Hebrews, we will come to realize this is central to our understanding of the gospel. It is only as fully God that Jesus can accomplish our salvation. The author unpacks this for 13 chapters. We not only see who Jesus is, we see what he has done. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 13 tells us, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet? At the right hand, is the position of power and privilege where enemies are conquered and Jesus is victorious. Listen, Christ has done a perfect work on your behalf and on my behalf to take away our sins. I think of that original audience who was burdened with the weight of habitual sin. I know that's many of us here today. If you are aware of the burden of sin, if you are suffocating under the weight of shame, there is good news. Christ did a perfect work, a perfect work for you and for me. Christ's work is perfect, and there is a result 
that we get to realize today, right now, real time, and there is a great hope that we get to look forward to tomorrow. Verse 8 and verse 12 speak of his kingdom being forever and ever. He is forever the same. His years have no end. He is coming back. His kingdom is eternal. This is our great hope. In his being and in his work, Christ is vastly superior. Everything about Christ is vastly superior. He is creator. He reigns. Pray with me. Father, I'm grateful for the privilege you give us as a church week in and week out of sitting under this word. We are so privileged today. We are so privileged today to have our eyes lifted above the things of this world, above angels, above all human messengers. We are so privileged today to to have our eyes drawn to you, Jesus. This text is so rich. We are so grateful. God, would you, would you stir up within us our affections for you? God, would you, would you open up the eyes of our heart and our minds to see you as you really are, God? Would you help us to understand the, the mind-blowing significance of the fact that you are fully God and you are righteous king and you are immutable creator and you are conquering victor? Jesus, you are Son, you are Lord, you are God. You are the name above every name. You create and sustain and govern and redeem. You purify from sin. You're all-knowing, all-present, unchanging, eternal. Everything about you is vastly superior to everyone and everything we've ever known. You are preeminent, and may you be preeminent in our lives. May we serve you as you reign. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.